1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Jennifer Kayong Lee, your host, and with me here is Ellen Jones, who will be talking about her book, Literature in Motion, Translating Multilingualism Across the Americas, published by Columbia University Press in 2022. In Literature in Motion... Ellen Jones centers not just translation, but multilingualism as both an artistic practice and scholarly lens through which to examine the production and reception of literature across the Americas. Focusing on writers who use mixed language forms, such as Spanglish, Portignol, and Franglish, she shows us how these authors and their translators use multilingualism to disrupt binaries and hierarchies in language, gender, and literary production itself. Thank you so much for joining me, Ellen.
0: Hi, Jennifer. Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, Hi. So I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Sure. I am from the UK. Um, I grew up actually, much of my kind of primary school years, I grew up in Tokyo in Japan. Um, And I think being surrounded by another language um, and another culture kind of in some way, was quite formative in my interest in in studying other languages and cultures, although I actually have not been back to Japan for 20 years. Um, my mother is also part Greek, um, and speaks Greek. So I guess that's another, um, another, she's a consummate linguist, really, my mother, she speaks many languages. And so growing up around those, I think, probably also had something to do with the um, the kind of seed of this book. Um, but I, I basically Uh, After living in Japan for a while, I grew up mainly in London, and I studied languages and literature at the University of Oxford, and then I did my PhD at Queen Mary University of London, um, which is really where where the the research for this book began. Um, And since finishing my PhD, I've lived in Mexico City for about three and a half years, And at the moment, I work actually mainly as a literary translator from Spanish into English with a focus on contemporary Latin American fiction. Um, And I'm an editor too at Hispanic Research Journal, um, which really says, the name says everything that it does. Um, And and I teach a bilingual class at the National Autonomous University of Mexico in Mexico City um, that explores the boundaries between English and Spanish, but also between um, literary translation and creative writing. So that's really how I spend my days at the moment.
1: That's so cool. So I'll start with our usual big question. What brought you to this project? Um,
0: Well, as I mentioned, so the research for this book really grew out of my PhD thesis. Um, And that thesis kind of began with an interest in in bilingual writing, uh, especially Spanish, English bilingual writing, Spanish being the main other language that I that I know and use. Um, but it also kind of took shape alongside what was then quite a fledgling literary translation practice. So at the same time that I was doing research in university, I was also starting to translate some samples from novels. Um, I started doing some formal literary translation training with the the British Centre for Literary Translation in the UK. Um, And as I was coming to the end of of my research, I also did a six-month mentorship with a wonderful translator called Samantha Schnee, um, who was was then in the UK, is now in the US. Um, And I also worked as an editor for Asymptote, which is an online journal of translation literature and translation. Um, and in my work for them, I I did a, a number of things. I was editing reviews and essays mainly, but I also edited a couple of special features, which came out in a long time ago now, 2015 and 2016 on, on multilingual writing. Um, and those special features were really important, I think, to this book, because they were how I first came across writers like Wilson Bueno and Erin Moore, who I discuss in the book. Um, and they were also a forum for me to publish my own translation of a piece of writing by Susanna Chavez-Silverman, who is another another writer I, I discuss a lot in the book. Um, so I think where I'm going with this, I guess, is that like all of these, all of these things, um, I was kind of simultaneously thinking about theory of translation but also practicing translation and they were kind of mutually informing kinds of work that I was doing at the same time and I think that my my practicing translation informed an understanding of translation as a kind of as as a creative endeavor I guess that's kind of analogous to other forms of creative writing and I think that that hopefully comes through in the book that I've written Um, and it also led to an interest in what impact this assumption that literature is, is necessarily monolingual might have on the practice and industry of translation? Um, so I guess kind of two two halves of of a of um, writing life kind of coming together in in this one book.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that. I love that you bring um, like the theory and the practice together because I know even in university when I was interested in translation like i don't i don't know how it is in the uk but here in the us like i could take classes either um like in the school of the arts that are taught by you know translators and like those are more practice-based versus classes in um like a literature program that's taught not by like a translator but like an academic who like Mm i don't know like studies literature but doesn't actually like translate um In the same way and so I I thought it was super cool that in your book you really are able to bring um, both your experience of actually working as a translator and thinking about not just the theory but like what actual readers read it like (laughs) like it it just felt very different and I I really love that so yeah Um, so you talked about this a bit in your your previous discussion but there's a common assumption people have that literary multilingualism and translation are separate um, or there's some tension between them because multilingual texts exist simultaneously in multiple languages, whereas translation is supposed to be concerned with making a text in one language accessible in another language. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how our ability to understand, um, like how does that belief limit our ability to understand how multilingualism shapes how literature is produced and read?
0: Right. That's, that's a really good question. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, exactly as you said, um, I guess multilingualism studies within a university context have traditionally focused on like the simultaneous presence of multiple languages um, in a piece of writing, um, whereas translation studies really are concerned with the transfer from, from one language to another. Um, and it's often a kind of unidirectional move. Yeah. Um, and they're often described as opposites in this regard to the extent that like multilingual writing is often described as being untranslatable. Um, but one of the things that I'm trying to do in this book is to show that um, that actually multilingual writing is, is full of translational strategies. It's full of translation. Um, and especially that there's what I think is a kind of aesthetic connection between the two writing practices. So um, if you think of... Uh, what's often described as like a foreignizing translation to use Lawrence Venuti's um, yeah. term, a translation that unsettles and kind of challenges its readers by allowing itself to, I guess, be influenced by the forms of the source language and the source culture. Um, if you think of a foreignizing translation, it's quite defamiliarizing. It's kind of estranging and actually that's the exact same effect that a lot of multilingual writing has so there's this kind of natural connection between the way that they they look and they feel and they function very similarly they're both sort of challenging the right challenging this like assumption that many readers especially in the english-speaking world have to like an easy reading experience the challenging that right to be able to access something easily without trying very hard um, So in the book, I try to give lots of um, examples of strategies that are used in multilingual writing that are very similar to strategies used by translators, and those strategies are both on a micro level, like at at the level of the word and the sentence, and sometimes they're on a more macro level, like at the level of story or narrative. Um, So just to give listeners an idea of the kind of thing I talk about, um, If we give an example of a micro strategy, so talking about like a writer that draws on, that writes in one language mainly, but draws on the syntax or the idioms or the pronunciation of a different language. Um, So basically what happens there is that the reader kind of comes across forms that are strange in the text and has to sort of translate them in their head before they can actually interpret what's going on. So translation is happening in the in the reading of the of the book or of the text, and at a kind of bigger, more macro level, you might have a writer who is um, who is kind of anticipating the en- the translation of its of their own text into a different language. So sort of imagining how it might circulate in different territories, uh, who might read it, what effect their own text would have in a different language. So kind of reflecting in this sort of meta-referential way on the book's own movement outside of um, wherever it was composed. Um, Or they might write their text as a kind of fictional translation that doesn't have an original. So what what quite often happens is that um, readers understand that a narrative has already kind of implicitly understand that a narrative has already passed from one language to another before it gets to them. So we kind of know that translation has happened. Um, We're reading something that is a translation in the narrative world of the text, um, even though the kind of original in inverted commas never actually existed. So translation is, is there in multilingual writing on on a sentence level and on a bigger level. um, And that, that, in many ways kind of makes it arbitrary or sometimes kind of unhelpful to hold these two writing practices apart um, because they have a lot in common.
1: Yeah. You also discuss in Literature in Motion not just um, like the texts themselves as you've been doing so eloquently, but also how contemporary politics have shaped the place and status of multilingualism within the United States. Um, And you really, I think, Illustrate it quite beautifully. And you talk about the English only movement that arose in the 1980s to the US government's search for Arabic translators after 9 11 to even Trump's election and his attitude towards Spanish. So I was wondering if you could give our listeners a kind of brief overview or discussion of how the status of multilingualism has been changing within the United States.
0: Sure. Um, and yeah, I'm glad that you kind of bring up the United States, because it is important to say that even though I'm British, <laughs> um, I guess the kind of center of gravity of this book really does hover somewhere over the States, because um, because my two languages are English and Spanish mainly, um, and because of the history of the use of Spanish in in that country. Um, but I, I also kind of wanted to... Uh, to shift that axis a little bit and to kind of gesture outwards towards like other kinds of language mixing that aren't centered in the US. But um, you're right, I talk a lot about about the history of of, um, uh, monolingualism, multilingualism in the US. So um, to answer your question, (laughs) um, I sort of start by Talking a little bit about yeah these two organizations called English First and U.S. English that kind of came to prominence in in the eighties um, as advocates for having English as an official language in of the U.S. government um, kind of at a federal level in the states because the state the U.S. doesn't actually have a, an official language at at um, a at federal level. Um, And the kind of growing support for these organizations as a result, both of anti-immigrant sentiment um, and you, Jennifer, will will know about this from the perspective of other other groups in the U.S. But um, I think a lot of that anti-immigrant sentiment was directed at Spanish-speaking neighbors of the U.S., um, So in particular Mexicans, but also uh, people coming from Cuba, from Puerto Rico and other parts of of the continent. Um, But also because of this kind of quite complacent assumption that, well, English is so important at a global level. that we don't, we don't need to have fluent speakers of other languages here because other people will make the effort to learn English and take on that burden of language learning. So we don't have to. Um, and I think September 11th, 2001 was a kind of make, wake up call in a sense that that wasn't a particularly sensible attitude to take that um, Having a dearth of translators is actually not just um, culturally but also militarily uh, diplomatically a really um, problematic stance to take um, you have to rely on machine translations which not always um, super reliable as we all know <laughs> um, so there was this kind of reevaluation after after the events of um, September eleventh not only of the importance of languages, at um, in kind of foreign policy, but also but also culturally in the kind of like national cultural intelligence. Um, so there were a, a, a number of books that came out trying to kind of reevaluate the importance of of multilingualism and of and of translation to the history of um, of United States literature, um, and really. Trying to kind of reevaluate the country as a as one that has always been multilingual uh, to some extent, and rethinking um, parts of literary history from that perspective. Um, I think bringing things a little bit more up to date. um, We know from from Donald Trump's presidency that there is this kind of residual. retrenchment or kind of um uh yeah i guess re- retrenchment when it comes to language politics in the us there's there's a residual anglocentrism in in the country um we think of um trump's attitude when he was on the can- campaign trail even um he didn't want to buy any spanish language tv or radio airtime um he criticized other Politicians for speaking Spanish to to um, to citizens. He took down the Spanish language pages from the White House website when he came into office. Um, and even though he's not in office anymore, English still undoubtedly has this really important role as a global lingua franca, um, not only in international relations but also in other kinds of business and development and bureaucracy, and also in the publishing world. Of course, it has this central role in the canon canon of of world literature which historically has been dominated by English um and I guess that that kind of monolingual paradigm that English monolingual paradigm is is what the writers that I talk about in the book are kind of struggling against pushing back against
1: yeah I think I love that um and I think like you foreground this very early on in your book and I really love that you contextualize not just like um, multilingualism as part of cultural works, but think about um, kind of the sociopolitical space and like the ways in which multilingualism is thought of even at like a policy level, a kind of, I don't know, like, and like you said, like a diplomacy or like a military, militaristic or like nationalist level as well and how that ends up shaping um, kind of the works that, the the ways in which works are being produced and read. Um yeah, thanks so much for, for that. Um, and I also, so I, um, my my primary languages that I work with are like English and Korean. In the past, I've studied Latin, and those languages have kind of different relationships to each other than perhaps like languages that you've worked with. And so I really found your comparison of Spanglish and Portignol to be fascinating. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what they are and how you kind of pull apart how both Syntactic and sociopolitical differences and the relationships between Spanish, English and Portuguese mark these multilingualisms as different from each other.
0: Absolutely. My gosh, I'd love to hear about, about the the ways that Korean and English can be kind of intertwined and mixed um, I think that would that it must just be an entirely different ball game. I mean, really different. <laughs> really different. I mean, I'm 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 working mainly with texts that are written in European languages. Um and uh I guess I guess the first thing to say is that I use these these hybrid terms like Spanglish and Portunol, which um they're very useful. They're kind of widely recognizable. You hear them and you can figure out what they're doing. Um they're often used by the authors themselves in the promotion of their own books but of course they, they kind of they suggest this very like easy fusion of of linguistic systems um, that are supposedly kind of intact and separate um but i want to stress that there's also there's loads of kind of diversity within each of these terms there's loads of permeability between them they are not uh kind of solid identifiable things they are um they manifest very differently basically in writing by different yeah. authors um and i guess in the case of spanglish which um which is the language if you like <laughs> that um that i discuss most thoroughly in the book um i actually find it quite useful to think more about like spanglishes um because the it's so they are so heterogeneous, yeah. um, obviously in spoken language, but also in written language, which is my interest here. They vary enormously from author to author. Um, so you might have a writer who who writes mainly in English and, you know, includes a few quite widely recognized terms outside of the Spanish speaking world um, into their English. So, you know, you might have a taco here and a tortilla there. Um or a I don't know, mama or a gracias, things that like, don't really need any second language competence to, um, to understand. Um, and then on the other hand, you might have this really really sustained code switching uh, mixing at, at a sentence level within the sentence, back and forth between English and Spanish all the way through a like full length prose text those are really, really different things. <laughs> um, it's mu- that second one is much, much more linguistically demanding on a reader. Um, but I guess, no matter how much mixing is going on, um, all the writers of Spanglish that I talk about in this book are writing in, in a really long tradition of using Spanish to resist English's status as like the language of value in the US and globally as well. Um, They register the presence of Spanish in their writing in different ways to different extents. Um, And there's a long history of that. Um, So we can think of, for instance, a Chicana writer like Gloria Ansaldúa who many listeners will be familiar with. uh, particularly, her bilingual book *Borderlands: La Frontera*, the *New mestiza*, which was which used Spanish as a way of kind of validating the experiences of of Chicanas um, in response to various kind of exclusions that they experienced um, in the U.S. Uh, to talk about themes of identity. Um, and of marginalization and to kind of push back against the, the dominant Anglo-American culture. Um, and that, that book of Anzalud really was key in, in consolidating like the academic study of the US border region and of um, and of this language mixing. Um, so there's there's that tradition and the writers I talk about here are, are certainly kind of conscious of the importance of that that work and other works by Chicano writers um, but then lots of other immigrant writers um, also experiment with with mixing English and Spanish in their writing um, there are Dominican American writers like uh, Julia Alvarez or uh, Juno Diaz who I talk about in the book um, but also Cuban Americans Puerto Ricans they like Sp- Spanglish has kind of long been used as a way of resisting marginalization and resisting mainstream anglophone culture um, and i guess the longevity of this tradition really has meant that to some degree it's become kind of convention for any latinx writer to use spanish to a certain degree um, and that has meant that They've kind of opened themselves up to accusations of like turning their writing into sort of cultural tour guides. Um, so, if you if you use span if you mainly write in English and you use Spanish to to some degree, um, but that Spanish is kind of cushioned to uh, in certain ways to make it like easily digestible by people who don't yeah. really speak Spanish. Um, <sighs> often, it's not as important like the meaning of the Spanish words that they use, but more as a kind of way of signaling their identity, um, their Latinidad, if you like. Um, and I guess what's really interesting about the writers, I, the, the kind of Spanglish writers I talk about in this book, is that they're, they're not only pushing back against that tradition, but they're also engaging with this kind of expectation that their work will be marketed as, uh, uh, to, to non-Latinx readers as a kind of commodity. So they're sort of commenting in these quite complex ways on their yeah. own marginality by, by uh, yeah. Recognizing that there's this history of using Spanish in, in, in writing in the U S and, and uh, kind of subverting it to their own ends. Yeah. Um, but you asked me, sorry, <laughs> you asked me about portunol as well, but I'm interrupting you now.
1: Oh no, go on. Yeah. I think it's um, yeah. I'm, hoping you could really address the comparison yeah between the two as well
0: i exactly i was just gonna i talked a lot about spanglish because it it really does um it it takes up a kind of big part of the book but right there's this portuñol as well which um is a sort of mixture of portuguese and espanol spanish um and it's i mean many people fewer people will have heard of this (laughs) term it's definitely not as commonly used um, either in like literary circles or outside literary circles. It's not as widely studied or documented as Spanglish. Um, but I talk about it in the context of a book called Mar Paraguayo by, uh, Brazilian writer, Wilson Bueno. Um, and I guess just to give like a little bit of context about Portuñol, um, Brazil is, uh, the the majority of Brazilians are monolingual in Portuguese, the colonial language there. Um, And Brazil has this kind of vision of itself as a, like, linguistically homogenous country. Um, But there are many, many dozens of surviving indigenous languages. um, And Guarani is one of those languages, is one of the most widely spoken ones. Um, And in the border regions, particularly with Paraguay, um, where Guarani is very widely spoken, um, nearly 90% of the population there speak Guarani as well as Spanish, which is the, the de facto language of like governments and kind of at federal level. Um, there is a tradition of, of this language mixing happening, much like we've seen with Spanglish. Um, but the two kind of mixes are really very different. So, as I've said, historically, a lot of Spanglish literature has been, has subordinated Spanish to English. Um, So kind of assuming that readers are more comfortable and familiar with English. um, English is more dominant, not just in terms of like the amount it's used, but also like the way that it's used. Um, Whereas if you look at writing in Portunol, including this book, Mar Paraguayo, that's not nec- like, that's not the case with Spanish and Portuguese. You don't have one that's necessarily subordinated to the other a lot. Um, so in Brazil, Portuguese is definitely the more widely spoken language, but it doesn't have the same prestige internationally as English does. Right. So the kind of power dynamics at play in Portunol are really different to the power dynamics at play in Spanglish, right. Where yeah. um, whether you're talking about like the, Puerto Rico or the border with the US and Mexico like the the kind of hierarchy between the languages not is not the same um and also while with Spanish and English you have two languages that are they can they're mutually unintelligible right um they are one of them has romantic roots one of them has um, Germanic roots if you speak one you'd can't necessarily understand the other um but Portuguese and Spanish are very very cognate, they have really similar syntactics and grammatical structures, um, they share a lot of vocabulary, so there's, that kind of facilitates certain combinations and certain kinds of mixing that are really different to the kinds of mixing that you can have in English and Spanish. Um, so in portuñol it's often really difficult to tell which words or which elements belong to each language. Um, there's a lot of parts of the language that are identical, so you can't really pull them apart and say, oh, here's a switch from one language into another, and here's another switch back. Um, that's a little bit easier to do with English and Spanish because they're so different. Um, and I would, I mean, I, I can only imagine how that would be with say English and Korean that, you know, um, because not only are they. Like typologically very different languages, but they also use different writing systems. So,
1: yeah.
0: um, you have a really completely different ball game there.
1: Yeah, it was really yeah. fascinating because, um, yeah, like you say, like Korean is, it's known as being like a language isolate. There are not related languages. So even when I've studied like multilingual ethnic Korean communities who practice speak like, I don't know, like a mix of Korean and Russian or like Korean and Japanese, I've never encountered that kind of like language mixing that you describe, where, like, syntactically, they're they're so much more tied together. So it's just really fascinating to read about and to hear about. And it's super cool. I also just want to highlight for um, listeners, should they have the time and be able to go read your book, that even as someone who, like, is not familiar with these languages, I think you do a really fantastic job of describing and, like, making, like, you your writing is very engaging and we can follow along as you describe these differences Um because like you know I can't like look at it and like self-explanatorily like know that but your explanations are just really I think yeah elegantly kind of describe that for somebody who like myself is not very familiar with um yeah these language mixings that you describe. Thank you I'm <laughs> glad I'm glad to hear that and also I should say
0: that I talk a bit in in the the Portuñol book that I I write about, that book also has a lot of Guarani in it, and I don't know any Guarani uh, other, over and above what I've studied in the, my research for this book. Um, and uh, it, that indigenous language spoken in in Paraguay and parts of Brazil is also really important to the way that the, the author kind of imagines their language use and the way that the protagonist imagines their language use as well. Um, but I'm glad, I'm glad to know that, um, I think this is accessible to, to people who don't know, um, to Portuguese and Spanish. And I'm absolutely certain that this kind of mixing must go, definitely goes on in other parts of the world, even among, um, as you say, like languages that don't share writing systems or share like cultural histories. Um, I would be, I would be fascinated to hear even in speech, maybe not writing, um, Russian mixed with with Korean or or Korean with Japanese. Um, it, I feel like it's natural that it happens, even if it doesn't kind of quickly make its way into into writing and into into literature.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's like an endangered language known as Koryamal, which is spoken by um, ethnic Koreans who were um, deported to Central Asia by Stalin during World War Two, and that's a language where like there's no native orthography because it's kind of a mixture of Korean and Russian and so like there there's really no like writing system that captures all the sounds of it and right. um like especially these days like the generation that spoke it is kind of like is being lost and so the language is being lost um and How yeah I really I'm so also I'm really glad that you um foreground um like indigeneity and indigenous indigenous languages cuz I don't know, sometimes in conversations about multilingualism, like, I think that, especially I think multilingualism um, and, like, translation as practice, it can get lost just because um, a lot of translation is driven by, like, who will buy things on, like, a global market. And, like, mm-hmm. oftentimes, um, like, Indigenous languages get lost in that conversation. Absolutely. Um, so. And actually, this, this I mean, I'm so glad that you brought that up as well because this is partly...
0: of where i've gone since writing the book um i've been doing some research with a a wonderful colleague in the states called paul warley on the translation of indigenous languages from mesoamerica so the part of the world where i live um into english um and the particularly like the role that spanish plays in in moving from indigenous languages into English. English isn't really spoken in the region, but Spanish obviously is. Um, and looking at all the different, the different roles that the the different relationships that the three languages have to each other and the different yeah. ways that they make it from, from one to another. So there's not necessarily this kind of easy bridge from say soque, which is spoken in Chiapas in Mexico. To Spanish as a bridge, and then to English. You know, often you have text being composed in more than one language at the same time. Um, you have uh, you have um, like translators into English um, working from both Spanish and the indigenous language at the same time to get a text into English. So you get like all these different shapes of languages moving. Um, and that's—it's been really fascinating to see how that that process happens and how it's often a really kind of collaborative process as well. There are lots of different actors involved. Sorry, I've gone off on a tangent yeah, that's here. That's so but... <laughs> interesting.
1: I think also because even in like machine translation, which you brought up earlier, like um, because like a lot of um, like people don't haven't invested in like computational resources for like machine translation of indigenous languages a lot of times the way they'll do it is they'll have these and not just indigenous languages but really like machine translation or like natural language processing for like any languages not like mm-hmm. honestly like english or even spanish like um a lot of times they'll go through like closely related languages so there's a lot of research on like um like what languages are even like identifying which languages are computationally similar each ho- to each other so that like mm-hmm. tools developed for like a major language like English, Spanish, Japanese like said they might be adapted to translate or work with indigenous languages instead of having to like develop tools that are specific to um yeah marginalized languages. It's I don't know there's That'd a lot of people thinking about that in so many different realms. I'm, I'm really <laughs> glad you bring that up. Um, yeah yeah. so so, in your chapter on Susana chavez Silverman, who you've talked a bit about um today as well, um you discuss how multilingualism, and this is also something we've talked a bit about, demands of the reader a kind of slow and engaged and active reading, whereas translation is often about making something easy to consume by domesticating its foreignness for the reader. And so, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about how, as a translator, like you've encountered and negotiated this aspect of Chava Silverman's work?
0: Sure. Um, so, right, translation is conventionally like a, a way of enabling communication or, for, or like for facilitating access to something. Um, and it often can be a way of clarifying something that might otherwise be kind of foreign or different or other to you. Um, but what I find fascinating about Susanna's work um, is that... She uses translation in her writing, but not as a way of explaining anything or making things clearer, um, and especially not for the benefit of like, a monolingual English speaker. Um, rather, she uses translation as a way of like, slowing down communication <laughs> and making it more difficult. Um, she uses it to like, defamiliarize words and also objects and concepts so that we we see them in in new ways and we have to think about them harder before we figure out what's going on. Um, and let's just give an example, something like, um, she, she likes to use, um, a a calc is a word for a kind of often described also as a loan translation. Um, it's a sort of literal translation of say an idiom in one language into another language so just to use an example that um that comes up a lot in her work in in spanish um different parts of the spanish-speaking world uh often the word ojo is used to mean like oh careful watch out um and sometimes it's it's uh used in its diminutive form ojito um and what what susanna does is she translates this idiom into english so she will write in a text, little eye, um, ojito. <laughs> but what she means by that is like, you know, watch out, be careful here. Um, and by translating this idiom into English, she 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 kind of forces readers, no matter what their language competent is competence is, to like slow down and pay attention, and be like, okay, what's going on here? Um, you can't just consume the text without like engaging properly with it, um, and I think that that's really interesting because it's basically this sort of quite playful translation uh, transgression of like a convention in translation practice. So usually, as translators, when we um, we come across uh, an idiom or like a fig- figurative expression in our source language we don't just translate it literally we try and find an expression in the target language that expresses the same idea or a similar idea right and Susanna says no I'm not interested in doing that I like literal translations and she shows us how kind of interesting and expressive and sometimes sort of thought-provoking they can be as well um and I could use I can just just take a different example Um, of her kind of transgressing these like translation conventions. Um, She often translates things where usually we wouldn't translate them. So if you take somebody's proper name, um, like Ellen Jones is not a especially interesting example, although I'm sure she would do something fun with it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, She takes proper names and she kind of treats them as though they have like the same semantic value as any other word so rather than you know usually if we came across um the name of a place like the Plaza de Mayo is a really famous place we would usually write Plaza de Mayo in an English translation we wouldn't change it to May Square or whatever um, but Susanna really likes to translate them anyway so she does things like refer to the writer Bell Hooks as campanita ganchos, she's literally yeah. translated the word bell and the word ganchos. <laughs> um, and uh, again, like the effect of this is that basically, in order to for readers to to understand the text, they have to like stop and translate. Um, and so we get this this kind of the binary that we talked about at the beginning of our conversation between like multilingualism as. Um, uh, as having kind of the simultaneous presence of language and as being kind of complex and hectic and a bit subversive and then translation as smooth and readable and facilitating communication. That's not happening here. The opposite is happening. She's kind of making reading harder rather than easier.
1: Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much for that. I was wondering if you wanted, or if you could just choose an example that you've worked with in your own translation of her work. And kind of describe for us um yeah you're or uh, yeah absolutely decided to deal with it or work with it i mean it was
0: it was yeah it was tough it was great fun but it was tough so i have Susanna really to thank for for being open enough to allow me to try and give translation ago with her work um and really to experiment freely even though neither of us were sure how the translation would turn out um uh so i guess in my case um i had to make some big decisions at the beginning and those were really hampered by my own language competence right so i usually translate only into english um so i decided that um even though her text is bilingual my text was going to be much more monolingual than hers um, because that was just the way I was able to do it um, and that left me with this problem of how to how to convey the um, I guess the aesthetic effects of of her text by using mainly one language so how do I um, how do I show that there's this contrast between the two languages in the source text without actually using two languages? Um, so I I kind of thought about various different ways of doing this, and one would have been to use a different to use different typefaces. Um, so for instance, to to write mainly in English, but to move between italics and regular font, say, or bold and regular font, to create some of that visual hecticness on the page so it looks kind of as as complex as hers does um another thing I could have done would have been to combine different styles of English or registers of English or varieties of English um in the end I actually ended up using really a combination of strategies so I I left some Spanish in my translation um And I thought really hard about which Spanish, which bits of Spanish to, to leave so that this would be a kind of opening up to new readers, but not, but a strategic opening up one that didn't, um, that didn't make things entirely easy for the, for the pieces, new readers. I wanted it to still be difficult because I felt like that was important, um, to be true to the the text itself. And I did things like I experimented with using Spanish accents, but on English words, so that the English words look sort of foreign. Um, And you kind of stop and you're like, okay, hang on, wait, is that an English word or is it a Spanish one? And I'm not sure. Um, And I used, I tried playing around with my own kind of calcs, those loan translations, trying to kind of translate um, in the other direction, uh, idioms, into into English um, and Susanna thankfully was really open to me kind of trying out all of these different strategies and um, I think they were they would be more or less appropriate depending on what kind of text you are working with but in this case I think it was a short piece it was published online as part of a this feature on multilingualism as I said so in that context uh, it kind of made sense to to try out all these different all these different ways of um, of conveying the contrast between languages in the, in the source, um, and that would have to be really have to be kind of reevaluated depending on on where you are publishing your translation.
1: So, in your discussion of Juno Diaz's *The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wao*. You discussed the breadth of both the scholarly and broader public reception of Diaz's work. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about um, the annotated Oscar Wow as an example or artifact of the brief wondrous life of Oscar Wow's reception and the limitations in its approach to trying to do what you call uncensored the novel. Right.
0: So this is a, a really interesting um, artifact, as you as you put it, it's the annotated Oscar Wow is a it's a website that was compiled by a reader of of Diaz's novel, um, and evidently a reader who doesn't really know any Spanish. Um, and she she amassed kind of hundreds of annotated notes to the book um, she started off doing it herself just researching on the internet and then it became this kind of crowdsource list over time as other people contributed their own suggestions um, and the annotations cover they cover the um, translations of the spanish words that the novel uses but also all sorts of other things like cultural references um, you know Food and drink, but also historical figures in different parts of the world, um, films, music, art, um, and it, just to give you an idea of like the kind of reader that that the annotations seem to be directed at. One of the very first entries in the list um, kind of explains, in inverted commas, the Dominican Republic by including a link to the Wikipedia page. <laughs> um, so, I guess it's a re- it's a really interesting. Um, text because these annotations seem to be driven by a desire to kind of gain control over the text. Um, it felt a bit like it was out of reader's control. There was a lot that they were missing and they want to kind of fill in all the gaps and blanks, right? Because there are there are lots of gaps and blanks in this novel. Um, there are blanks that are produced by its language. So if you don't know Spanish, there are, the words and phrases in Spanish are bits of the story that you might not understand, um, and it also has this absolutely vast cultural frame of reference. So um, it spans kind of so-called highbrow things like modernist art or Caribbean literature, and so-called lowbrow things like um, references to I don't know Star Wars or June or TV shows, um, and. It, this, the annotated Oscar Wilde seems to show how much this kind of frustrates readers and unsettles them. Um, Again, these, you know, lots of readers sort of feel like they have the right to have a full understanding of of things that they read. Um, And I think that it's quite helpful to think about this exercise in annotating the book as an attempt to kind of uncensor it. Um, But an attempt that is not particularly Um, that's never really possible to achieve entirely because I think that this is a novel that's uh, in part about um, the difficulties of narrating a period of history during which information was often destroyed systematically and when victims of the oppressive dictatorship, um, because the novel is of course um, set kind of in the aftermath of the Trujillo dictatorship in the Dominican Republic, so it's a period of history in which victims of that repressive regime often kept silent as a way of protecting themselves. So all of these blanks and gaps in the novel are there for a reason, and um, this attempt to to sort of uncensor it is in in many ways never never going to be fully possible, um, partly because of the content of the novel itself, but partly because. Um, uh, a kind of full understanding of any text is really—it's um, kind of a an impossible goal because we all read things differently, um, and the each of our reading experiences will will vary depending on our own language competence, but also our own cultural background. So I kind of—that's why I sort of tried to think about this. Um, <laughs> this desire, this like compulsion to kind of yeah. the novel is not a particularly helpful one.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I was wondering also if you could tell us, so you you have a really fantastic chapter on Janina Braski's Yo-Yo Boing, and I was wondering if you could um, tell us about how this text demonstrates multilingualism as a kind of queer practice.
0: Right, uh, this is novel yeah by the puerto rican writer janina brasky it was published i believe in 1991 originally um and it's it's divided into three parts so it has uh, the first and the third part are very short and they're both written exclusively in spanish and then there's this long middle section that moves between english and spanish very regularly in the middle of sentences back and forth um, so similarly to Susanna Ch- chavez Silverman's work, it's it's quite demanding of of its readers in that they really have to have a degree of bilingual competence in order to make their way through that main section. Um, and the publishing of the book as a bilingual as a bilingual text was a way not only of kind of breaking away from that hegemony of English in the US, but also with uh, with Puerto Rico's own view of, of Spanish as like the linchpin of its uh, kind of national and cultural identity. So it's kind of pushing back in in two directions at the same time. Um, and the thing that's really important to say about, about the use of language in this book is that... Um, the English in it is quite idiosyncratic uh, in ways that suggest that the characters are not entirely confident in using English, as though they learned English later in life. Um, but this idiosyncratic English is also very expressive um, and it shows really like the creative potential of mixing languages and, and um, uh that it can be kind of unexpectedly productive sometimes to not to be using a language that you're not entirely comfortable with. Um, So characters, they make a lot of kind of mistakes uh, in inverted commas, but they're often funny. Uh, They're sometimes very creative. Um, But what I tried to do in the book is to think about the way that those mistakes are linked to other kinds of social transgression in the novel. So. Mm So the characters in the book are um they're very kind of fluid in a number of ways so they they speak multiple languages they um uh they kind of the characters move between being writers and translators um, and they often also express queer desires or um or, or have queer bodies right um and there's this real kind of emphasis on like the overlapping nature of different different kinds of identities among the characters um so i think this really encourages us to think about the way that a person's linguistic identity interacts with um with queer desires and queer queer practices so on the one hand, the language that's used here—that you know—moves between English and Spanish, and it uses v- varieties of English that aren't necessarily confident and fluent. Um, we can think about that language as queer in the sense that it it doesn't it doesn't conform to convention or to expectations. Um, it's kind of transgressive to a certain degree. It's fluid and. It, um, indeterminate, but also it's like regularly linked in the narrative itself with ideas about impurity and ideas about um, shame. So just to give you an idea there are characters who kind of police each other's language so when each of them makes a mistake they kind of call each other out on it um but they also police each other's gender and sexual identity in exactly the same way they're always calling each other out for transgressing kind of conventional ideas about masculinity and femininity um and then there's even this kind of climatic scene in which a character, um, she performs some poems that she's written in English at a kind of literary salon, and she talks about the performance as a kind of reluctant coming out of the closet. So there's this link between the shame that characters experience at being gender non-conforming or, or non not heterosexual um, and the shame that they experience at, at being a colonial subject in Puerto Rico and speaking as a result these two languages but not necessarily speaking them to the kind of fluent extent that they would like to
1: yeah thank you so much for that so and you know you just describe this really rich and complex reading that you do within your book but you also go a step further and you talk about tesso dwyer's english only translation of yo-yo boing as kind of undoing the querying of language in the original that you just described for us, even as it queers the relationship between what we might call like a quote unquote original text and its translation. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about this kind of extension of that reading that you just did for us. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I'd describe that. So this is a this is
0: a kind of strange and fascinating translation um, done by by a woman called Tess O'Dwyer. Um and it was published in two thousand and eleven uh, by Amazon Crossing. So a completely different publisher to the one that the book originally came out with, which was um, a scholarly press. of niche interest scholarly press called Latin American Literary Review Press and Amazon of course is this kind of mass market giant (laughs) Um, so it's a translation into just English Um, and Tess is somebody that that Brasky has worked with before, Um, they obviously have a close relationship, she actually has her own like fictional counterpart in the novel itself, Um, there's a translator called Tess in the novel Um, and I probably should have mentioned before that this novel is very, um, it's very kind of meta referential. So there are, you know, there's a character called Janini, which is also the name of the author. Um, There are lots of characters who are writers and translators, and they're always kind of imagining their writing being translated in the future. Um, And the interesting thing about this English-only translation is that it doesn't only get rid of all the Spanish, as we might expect. Um, but it also makes the English different. It standardizes the English. It makes it more fluent and more musical. It gets rid of all that anxiety create that's associated with English in the, in the bilingual version. So it's kind of interesting because it seems to go hand in hand, I guess, with Amazon's, um, Amazon Crossing's publishing strategies, which because it it makes the novel obviously more accessible now that it's only in one language. Um, But it also doesn't kind of challenge any discourse about like the monolingualism of literature anymore. It doesn't challenge this idea about literature or language having to be standard (laughs) um, or fluent or smooth or easy. Um, And, I think it's really interesting to think about, because it would be very easy to, to criticize this translation as well, okay, it's undoing something that's really important in the bilingual version, which is that, you know, there's this connection built on shame and anxiety between, between language and, um, and, and gender and sexuality. That's gone in the English version. But I think if you look at the two at the two versions of the book side by side, something kind of even more complicated and interesting is going on, um, because because the book is so highly self-aware, right? So we can kind of read the translation as almost like a commentary on the novel itself, or a continuation of it. So in a way, it's kind of bringing to life the translation that's imagined in the novel itself, because the characters think and. Th- Write about a a trans an English translation of the novel that is that kind of um, standardizes the English that's, that that corrects it right, and so this translation that was published over ten years later kind of is that translation, and in a sense it sort of puts to rest the those anxieties in the text that that the language might be queer right. Um, so in a sense, we kind of can't pull the two versions of the novel apart because the, the bilingual version re- relies on the idea of a translation for it to make sense. But the translation obviously also relies on the bilingual version for it to exist. So there's this kind of complex and um, like collaborative relationship between them that in a way subverts the... I guess the hierarchy between original and translation, right? We think of original coming first and translation coming second. We think of um, original being primary and translation being secondary. But here we have this actually kind of queer, if you like, relationship between, between the two versions in the sense that um, they kind of have to be read together. They have this, this sort of equal relationship where the one relies on the other and vice versa.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, so as hopefully people have been hearing um, throughout Literature in Motion, you discussed the circulation of texts beyond a single or quote unquote original form in which they're first published. And I think you also talk about how, and I think increasingly people are seeing um, texts are not Often the first publication is a translation, but that's a a different discussion than this question I'm asking. But um, yeah, so you write about translations, you write about spoken performances and recordings even, Um, you write about texts that are updated by their authors for different audiences and more, which people will see if they can read your book in full since we've only been able to touch on really the surface of that here. But I was wondering if you could tell us about this public art installation that you write about that was put together by um, Canadian artist Andrew Forster in collaboration with translator Aaron Moore um, on Wilson Bueno's text Mod Paraguayo, which you've discussed a bit already today.
0: Sure, absolutely. Um, so, Andrew Forster uh, is, he creates public access art, which is of, which often kind of mixes different genres and modes, right? Um, and this exhibition that he put together was, um, I guess, kind of another version of Wilson Bueno's book. Um, it's involved printing large, bright yellow banners with lines from... Erin Moore's translation. And this, her translation was done into Franglish, she calls it. Erin um, Moore is a, a, a Canadian translator who um, lives in Montreal. Um, and what Forster did was uh, print these giant banners and wrap them around a university building in Montreal, which is a French and English-speaking uh, well, yeah, a French and English-speaking um part of canada um primarily primarily french but english there as well um, and the banners were printed in what's called a hyper serif font we've probably all heard of a sans of sans serif which is a font that's like designed to be really easy to read um, it doesn't have any um it's very kind of smooth looking and a hyper serif font is the opposite of that so it has like all these spikes and hooks on it um which I don't know kind of draw attention to the to the letters to the language and um they act sort of like something sticky they kind of slow the reading down a bit um and what the exhibition is is kind of complementing in interesting ways both Wilson's Bueno's book and Aaron Moore's translation in that it it's it's kind of calling attention to the visual appearance of of language. And one thing that that Bueno does in his book is to kind of engage with the concrete poetry movement um, and pay real attention to the way that language looks on the page. Um, so he's turning this, um, Forster is turning, I guess, what is quite a Quite a cerebral book in many ways, um, quite a difficult book in many ways, um, out towards the public. So it's there, it's in, it's in the urban space, um, it's very bright and loud and kind of hard to ignore. Um, and he titled the exhibition Mer Paraguayen, forgive my French uh, pronunciation, um, slash Paraguayan sea. So it has this kind of double title in French and English. Um and interestingly, what they what Moore and Forster did for the for the banners was to actually shift slightly the quotations from the text that they chose so that they involved more English than French uh, sorry, more French than English. So there's this kind of sense that the book is is kind of overspilling into different um into different parts of culture, it's um it's shifting. Uh, It's moving from one language into another still. There's this kind of sense of it being... I think Erin Aaron, Aaron Moore said something like oh the book just goes on and on like it's impossible to stop it kind of has this like new life in different um, in different genres and in different spaces and uh, I think that that's a really fascinating continuation of of this book in particular um and something something that interests interests me a lot is absolutely kind of rewritings of texts both by um, the authors themselves and by and by other people and the the kind of new new journeys that they go on um through those rewritings.
1: Yeah, it sounds so fascinating and I think especially like reading your book I found myself thinking a lot more than I I normally do I think about how texts are read in so many different ways and take life in so many different forms of reception because I think you really highlight um Yeah, throughout your book, how how many different lives a text can have beyond, you know, when when the author first put like a pen to a page the first time. Um, And yeah, so I guess as we head towards the end, I was wondering, so you have experience not only as a translator and a literary critic, but also as you've also told us a bit about as an editor and you, you worked on these special features on multilingual writing and translation for the incredible online journal Asymptote, which as I'm sure many listeners know, publishes international literature in translation. So I was wondering if you could just tell us something about maybe like your favorite part of putting together those two special issues, um, anything particularly memorable. Yeah.
0: I think, I think probably my favorite part of doing those actually was, like the amount of collaboration it involved, because translating and and um, researching can be very isolating uh, experiences sometimes. Um, and this this editing work involved involved reading and and working with a lot of languages that I don't know. So the features each one involved publishing um, maybe eight different pieces um, that between them had. I don't know thirty languages, um, and so reading them is really hard work, um, and and curating them and, and choosing them is really hard work. It involves a lot of research, and the collaboration of um, my colleagues, not just at Asymptote, but lots of other translators I knew, kind of lent me their expertise. So this, like, to call me the editor of this these features is really not fair because it was it was a, absolutely a collaborative process, and it's something that I've been. I guess it's something that I've been doing more recently and thinking about a lot more as well. I've recently had the pleasure of co-translating books with um, one with Robin Myers, um, a wonderful translator who lives here in Mexico as well. And, um, and another friend called Jessica Mendez Sayer. And both experiences were so rich and kind of convinced me that um, from that doing things together is really just <laughs> the best, the best way. Not only from the perspective of a like a translator's working conditions, but also from the perspective of producing the best possible version of a text that you can in the language you're working into. Um, and as I mentioned the other uh, earlier as well, I was recently doing some research with Paul Worley about the translation of indigenous writing, and one of the things we were thinking about in in the article that we wrote was was these kind of new modes of working among writers and translators and, and other kind of literary actors um, and trying to think about those processes as a form of communal labor. So uh, kind of trying to distance ourselves a little bit from this idea of, like, the writer is an individual genius <laughs> um, and to kind of promote a mode of working that is... More horizontal, I guess, and kind of mutually beneficial, and to kind of acknowledge all the other people that in, are involved in the production of, in the publication of any piece of writing, yeah. Um, and yeah, so so like definitely in the in the editing of of those asymptote features, I was just delighted to have like the support and feedback and input from from lots of other people, and I would like to continue working like that.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for that. I, yeah, I think. I love that you're able to describe for us kind of communities of working with um, other people to produce those issues. So we've taken up a lot of your time, so I just have one last question, which is what are you working on next?
0: Ooh, um, I am working on, I have two translations coming out. Um, early next year one is of a book called cubanthropy <laughs> uh, which is coming out with seven stories press in the u.s it's by a cuban writer called iván la nuez and it's a collection of um a collection of essays written over the course of about 30 years um and it's got art criticism, music criticism, film criticism. There's a lot of politics in there. And it's just a fascinating look at um, at Cuba over, over recent decades. Um, and the second translation is a novel by the Mexican writer Margo Glens, um, who is a beloved... Um, Sor Juana, specialist here in Mexico. She's an essayist and a novelist, and uh, the novel I translated is going to come out in the UK. We don't know what it's going to be called in English yet because we haven't quite been able to <laughs> agree. Um, but it's a it's a wonderful novel um, that's set during uh, a wake, a funeral but it's um, in some ways very essayistic and it includes meditations on classical music and the form of the novel itself um, mimics to a certain degree the, the form of um, a set of musical variations. So it's like formally really interesting. Um, and I'm also in the middle of translating an anthology of writing about racism in Mex- and capitalism in Mexico um, that's coming out in the States, edited by Tania Islas and Milena Ang. It's coming out with Amherst University Press. Um, and a kind of fledgling project really is the last thing I'm working on, which is um, an anthology called it's not a it's not my translation it's an anthology that i'm editing with uh, my colleague andrew adair um and the, the anthology is going to be called untranslatable a book of translations and it's a a collection of um uh texts translated from many different languages by many different translators and the idea is to kind of Showcase the creative solutions that translators come up with um, to particularly thorny translation translation challenges. We're hopeful that that will see the light <laughs> in the next uh, in the next few months.
1: Yeah, that's so exciting, and you're working on so much. So I'm excited to see the new work you bring out, and also if readers are interested. Um, you know, you've written not only this book, but also translated a lot as well, so they can go find that as well. Um, thank you so much for joining me here today. Oh, thank you, Jennifer, for your wonderful questions. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.